I recently went back to my high school to give commencement and I ran into my high school counselor. I ran into a couple people that were still there and they were shocked when they heard my story for the first time. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm speaking with Yasmin Mustafa. Yasmin is the co-founder and CEO of Roar for Good, a social impact company reducing assault against women through wearable devices. Before Roar, she founded and later sold a blocking software company called 123 Link Kit, and she's also the founder of the Philly chapter of Girl Develop It. Yasmin is originally from Kuwait, and her Philadelphia story began as a child when she and her family were suddenly evacuated to the United States as refugees of the Gulf War. Bursts in, and there's two men that I have never seen before. We rushed upstairs, and we packed everything, and, and I was like, Mom, don't worry, we'll come back, we'll come back. In this episode, you'll hear the story of how Yasmin and her family would settle in Philadelphia, and the only one who did go back was her father. My dad, one day, suddenly packed two bags and hopped on a one-way flight. And the next day we found out he took all the family savings with him. So we were broke and undocumented. What follows is a story of unbelievable perseverance as Yasmin would go on to become a U.S. citizen, be named by BBC as one of the top 100 women in the world, and launch a social impact company that's making waves worldwide. We had orders in every state in the U.S., about 45 countries around the world. We had Ashton Kutcher posting about it, all these celebrities, authors. We were blown away by their response. All this and more about Yasmin, Roar for Good, and Yasmin's journey from undocumented refugee to model citizen right now on Philly Who. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin. Stay tuned. So, while some Philadelphians like me are born, raised, and make a life within a stone's throw of the Delaware River, Yasmin Mustafa's story begins halfway across the world in the country of Kuwait. There, as a young girl, she probably hadn't even heard of Philadelphia. But, as fate would have it, just before the Gulf War broke out, her parents would go on a business trip to the U.S. that would wind up altering their life's path and sending it straight through Philly. So living in Kuwait, my mom was pregnant with the youngest, who would be the sixth child. And my dad was going to Philadelphia for a business trip. My mom really wanted to go. My dad said no at first. She convinced him to make it happen by having her mom come over and stay with us. And she ended up joining my dad to Philadelphia on his trip. And while she was there, she had my little brother at Penn Hospital on July 1st, 1990. And it was supposed to be a short trip, but it ended up being prolonged because of, of the birth of my brother. And a few weeks after they came back to Kuwait, Saddam Hussein invaded the country for its oil. It was about five weeks after they came back. Five weeks. Five weeks. That's so little time. Yeah. Yeah, and then it was, I would say, four weeks after that, that we were in the bomb shelter when everything changed when the two men came in yelling his name, when they said, you have an hour to pack two bags amongst the eight of you, we're bringing you back to Philadelphia, everything right. changed. That so, so everyone was in 
a bomb shelter, what did some alarm goes off, goes off and yeah. And I think at this point it was probably the fifth or sixth time we had run down. So there was an alarm in the building. Every time it would go off, we all knew just run down the stairs, go to the basement and mm -hmm. go into the bomb shelter. Yeah. And then while you're in there, you hear banging on the door. What? It bursts in and there's two men that I have never seen before. The whole room got silent and they had a clipboard with them. And apparently my, my brother's name was on the clipboard because as an American citizen, I guess my parents had to write his name somewhere. And they knew that there was an American citizen in Kuwait in the midst of the war. And the war had reached the point where they were there to collect all citizens out of the country for their safety. So they came looking for him. And they came in and they said, let's go. You have two hours. We're going back to Philadelphia. You have one hour. You have to pack two bags among, uh, among all eight, eight of you. And we rushed upstairs and we packed everything. And I remember my mom was very frantic. And, and I was like, mom, don't worry. We'll come back. We'll come back. Because I thought it was temporary. And she asked me if I wanted my backpack. And I said, no, it's okay. Leave it. Let's just go. It's fine. We'll get it later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there was never a later. Wow. So at what moment did you realize that you weren't going back? I would say it was about three months after we were here that I kept asking my parents, when are we going back? When are we going back? When are we going back? And my parents never really actually said that we were going back. But at that moment, they, they told us that this was going to be it. We were going to be here for a while. So do you remember your first day of school in America? I remember the first day in the city. Um, I remember seeing... I had never seen so many tall buildings so close together. So you lived with, you lived in Philadelphia. I lived in Philadelphia. I lived in 15th and Jackson for the first nine months. So a refugee agency, because it was eight of us, well, had trouble placing us in a home. And it just so happened there was a three-story home. Not the best place to live, but it could accommodate all eight of us. And yeah, they enrolled us in school and helped us get acclimated. But I remember my first day, in Philly, mostly for three, thing, three things. One, the tall buildings. Um, the other one was the diversity of people. Because in Kuwait, everyone looked like me. Uh, you didn't see any Asians. You didn't see any black people. Everyone just looked like me. Everyone was tan like me. Um, and then uh, I remember seeing this man walk his dog on a leash and being like, why are you walking this dog on a leash? And there were dogs in Kuwait, but they roamed free. No one had dogs that as pets. Wow. They weren't considered a pet. And I just remember, yeah, he was walking this dog on a leash and he picked up his dog poop. And I was like, what, 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 <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with this country? What's this all about? That's not something I was used to. The dogs are in charge. Like, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so, so at what point did Philadelphia start to feel like home to you? At what point did it start to feel like home? To be honest, not until a couple years ago. Wow. So very, very recently. Very recently. Yeah. So you then you started going to school. You all stayed in the same house. Uh, is it true that you had the nickname in school 7-Eleven Girl? Yeah. So the first nine months in Philly, my dad tried to find a job as a mechanical engineer and he couldn't. A lot of immigrants, when they, when they come over to the States, their degree doesn't transfer over. And he was very stubborn. He said, no, I'm an engineer. I identify as an engineer. I'm going to be an engineer. And he went for interview after interview and didn't have any luck. And it was once our money kind of ran out uh, nine months in, he decided to finally 
swallow his pride and say, okay, I guess I will not be an engineer again and started looking for other work. And it just so happened that he had a connection in the suburbs in Morrisford and that there was a 7-Eleven for sale. And he decided that in order for the family to survive, he was going to go purchase that as a franchise and move all of us to the suburbs. And we were going to work there. It was going to become a family business. Gotcha. So you and worked at 7-Eleven. Worked at 7-Eleven. And it just so happened to be right across from the middle school and right across from the high school. So everyone, all my classmates, everyone in school knew the family because it was the hangout spot kind of after school or before school. Right. After school Slurpees, of course. Yeah, Slurpees. 7-Eleven day was the <laughs> most popular day. And um, 7-Eleven girl was my nickname. So all this time, you are technically not a citizen of the US, correct? I didn't know anything about being a citizen until I started applying for college. So when I started applying for college, I came across this field asking for a social security number. I didn't know what it went. I went to my mom, she went to my dad, he reached out to a lawyer. And then a few weeks later, we received shocking news that we were not considered citizens. We weren't actually even considered to be legal in the United States, that even though we had been brought over as, as refugees, something fell apart in the system and we were considered undocumented and illegal. So somebody, I guess, just dropped a ball and the documentation never came through? I still don't really know what happens. Apparently, we had a year to apply for citizenship and my parents say no one ever told them. Yeah. And we never did. Yikes. So you spent... How long uh, did you, did your dad own that 7-Eleven? 10 years. 10 years. And then is that when you went to college? I had a, a curveball in, uh, in that after I became undocumented, I realized that I couldn't apply for college because one of the requirements is a social security number. So after I graduated high school, I was trying to figure out what was I going to do? What could I do? And of course, we were applying to become residents and thus uh, citizens, but it would take a few years. It, it wasn't instant. And right after graduating, my family decided to sell the 7-Eleven store. And shortly after that, my dad, one day suddenly on uh, May of 2000, packed two bags and hopped on a one-way flight to Jordan. And the next day we found out he took all the family savings with him. So we were broke and undocumented. So he just... He just left? He just left. Yeah, he thought we were not going to win our immigration case. It was taking too long to hear back. By then, it had been three years. And he also thought we were becoming too Americanized. And he wanted to take us back for our safety, is how he put it. Right. And so did he think that you would go with him? He wanted us to go with him, and we, we, we did not want to. No. So he got mad and left. Wow. So then what, at that point, what do you, what do you even do? You, you know, you're not a citizen. You have no savings. What, what did the family turn to? The funny thing is I had been kind of lost trying to figure out what I could do. And that made the decision really easy. So broke, undocumented. Well, the only thing we could do is try to get an undertable job to survive. And, and that's what we all did. So we all, I remember the next day, my mom telling us that he had closed the bank account and had, hadn't left anything in it. And us looking around at each other, at like, okay, now what? What's gonna happen? And all of us making the plan to, to get jobs under the table, pay cash, easy to go unnoticed, do what we needed to do to, to live. So then how did you 
wind up attending college even though you didn't have citizenship? My mom. Uh, when I was 19, I w had really excellent grades in school. School was my refuge. And um, my mom one day, I don't even remember when it was. I remember I was 19 years old. She stormed down to the Montgomery County Community College without an appointment to see the president, uh, waited for two hours. Demanded to see the president of the college. Demanded to see the president <laughs> without an appointment, waited two hours. And then she was let back, sat across from her, told her our whole life story, something we never had done before to anyone outside of our family for fear that if the wrong person found out, if we told someone that became upset with us, they would go and report us to ICE and we would be deported. And we were in this kind of middle ground of, do we want to be sent back to a country that we felt no affinity to while trying to stay at a country that didn't seem like wanted us. And so we kept our status a secret and our situation a secret. And my mom decided to go for it and let it all out and tell this woman for the first time about how we came as refugees, how we discovered we're undocumented, about the 7-Eleven store, my dad leaving. And, uh, and at first the dean said, you know, I empathize, but there's nothing I can do. My hands are tied. And my mom said that she stared at her and said, well, then call the police because I'm not leaving unless you let my daughter go to school. My daughter deserves a chance at an education. And uh, the way she describes it is they got into the staring match where my mom said it felt like 10 minutes, but it was probably less than two minutes. She was trying not to blink first. And finally, the, the president said, okay, uh, she can attend, uh, but she can only take six credits a semester, not the full 12 credits. She has to pay out of state tuition and no one can know about this deal. And I seized that opportunity, but it was all because of my mom. Have you spoken to that president since then? No, but it's funny you ask because I've been trying to find her. Wow. Yeah. So you attend, what you said it was Montgomery? Montgomery County Community College. Part-time. Four years. Yeah. So six credits a semester means that you have to attend for four years to get your associates. And I did just that. I, did. I took six credits a semester, including summer, for four years to get my associate's degree. Wow. Why I worked two jobs making $5 an hour. Oh, my goodness. And then you went to Temple. And then I went to Temple, and that was easier, believe it or not, because Why? I had an associate's degree, and the assumption was, oh, well, she must have her documentation. And anytime I would I would be asked for my social security number, I'll just be like, yeah, I'll get it, I'll get it to you. I got it. Oh, sorry, I forgot. And I just started avoiding the admissions office, so I don't run into anyone. And I finally received legal residency the last semester at school. It was uh, 2006. So we're talking the better part of. This is a decade, right? That you were attending school? Seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. So you had to have at some point in this time thought that, uh, was there any point where you were afraid that you might be deported? I did not want to get too close to other people, especially Americans. Uh, I did not tell anyone about my status. I recently went back to my high school to give commencement and I ran into my high school counselor, I ran into a couple people that were still there and they were shocked when they heard my story for the first time because it was, I just never let anyone know for fear again. And as an adult now, it sounds irrational, but I thought if I got close to someone and I let them know and then they became upset with me, they'll go and report me and I will 
not be here anymore and I didn't want that to happen. So it was it was a lot of walking on eggshells a little bit, not wanting to have anyone find out, but also trying to do whatever we needed to do to get by. So tell me about the day that you got your citizenship. The day I got my citizenship was one of the best days, one of the happiest days of my life. It was around six years ago. It was April 19th, 2012 at 10.39 a.m. And I intentionally looked at the time because it meant that much to me because I had been waiting for that day for so long. And the reason it meant so much to me is I feel like from the moment I found out I was undocumented to that day, I kind of felt like a leaf blowing in the wind. Like, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Where is, just where, where, do, where am I? And, um, and the day I found out I was undocumented, I remember having this out-of-body experience where I was kind of looking back uh, and, and looking, um, on, uh, looking on, at everyone thinking, I'm not like you. I'll never be like you. I will never have the same rights as you. I'll not have the same voice as you. I'm, I'm different. I'm beneath you because I don't have that nine-digit number. And just having no idea how that nine-digit number on a little blue piece of paper could have so much power and why I couldn't have it, why I couldn't get one, and why I couldn't do the same things that everyone around me was doing. So the day I became a U.S. citizen, I finally felt unshackled from my circumstances. I finally felt like for the first time in my life at 30 years old, I could do what I wanted to do, not what I had to do to get by. Like on that day, I just, I finally felt like a person, a real human being. So what was the first thing you did as a U.S. citizen? So that day I wore a dress. I don't wear dresses. And I had a friend meet, meet up with me. We went to the park. We took a lot of pictures. We went out drinking. Uh, I decided to invite all my friends to uh, Broad on Tavern or Tavern on Broad. Tavern on Broad, I yeah. always mess up the name. <laughs> and um, They'll appreciate I had, the shout out. <laughs> <laughs> I had a special American flag cake made. And um, yeah, I just invited everyone. I remember walking because I was already drinking at this point like just yelling at everyone that I saw, telling them I just became a U.S. citizen, give me a hug, and which is not also not like me. I don't drink. I don't do hugs. Yeah. <laughs> I don't wear a dress. So already I was transforming before my eyes. <laughs> and yeah, and we just had an awesome time. I just invited everyone over and, and, and we celebrated the American way by drinking. And, yes, and, of course. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it was, it, was, it was amazing. It was awesome because I felt like finally... I could share in this moment with other people. Like it's, my life isn't a secret anymore. I could talk about what had happened, even though I hadn't yet at that point, but there was nothing to be afraid of. I couldn't be deported. I couldn't be sent back. I couldn't, I, I belong here. Yeah. Did you find it easy to open up and sort of stop walking on eggshells as it were? I didn't realize how how much I had been used to that until TEDx Philadelphia. So in 2015, they asked me to speak about my work at Roar. They wanted me to talk about violence against women. I was paired up with a coach, Marsha. Uh, one day, maybe about a month in, she asked me about my immigration story and I reluctantly told her. And after I was done, she said, that's your talk. 
you need to talk about that. And I said, uh-uh, no way. Uh, because by then, it just I had become so used to keeping it bottled up. And she finally talked me into doing it. And I, I think it went from seven people total knowing to 7,000 people knowing in the span of 15 minutes after that TEDx talk. It, I didn't realize how much it had been weighing me down. Yeah. It was such a cathartic experience to kind of... So you felt free after sharing it instantly with 7,000 people. Yes. <laughs> I didn't think that that would happen, but it did. Well, I, I believe it was while you're at Temple, correct me if I'm wrong, you founded a company called 123 Linkit. Is that right? Yes. So what was the thinking behind that? Why did you start that company? I got really lucky because get, becoming a legal resident the final semester at school, first, I got a scholarship for the first time. So something you can't do when you're undocumented, at least back then, is you couldn't apply for scholarships. You couldn't apply for loans. You had to pay out of pocket, everything out of pocket. So, And you're making less than half of what everyone else is, makes. So, for example, I remember working at this restaurant. I made $5 an hour as a hostess. My American friend made $10 an hour. And again, because of my status, my employer paid me that because they knew they could. Um, but that last semester was a turning point because not only now did I have my schooling paid for, thanks to the scholarship, which was thanks to my grade, I graduated with a 3.8 GPA. Um, but I now that I had a social security number as a legal resident, I took out student loans, even though I didn't need them. And I took out $20,000 that I put in the bank. And the reason I did that was due to advice from one of my mentors who said, you know you're gonna start a business. This is gonna be the lowest interest rate you're gonna be able to get. You have no credit, do this now and keep it for when you start your business. So that was a very smart move. Much, many thanks to my mentor, he suggested that. And when I graduated, I was interning at this very early stage tech a uh, consulting company called Team in a Dream with Skip Shuda. And uh, he offered me a part-time job after graduating, uh, moved, moved to full-time, and then I worked my way up to partner. And it was an amazing experience because over the course of three years, I learned all about tech. And I got to sit across the room of these entrepreneurs that had all these crazy ideas of things they wanted to do, of companies they wanted to start, of ways they wanted to make a difference, and I really wanted to be them. Uh, but in the meantime, I could learn from them as much as possible, and I got to pick up a lot working with entrepreneurs from many different industries, from writing a business plan to fundraising to go-to-market strategies. It was invaluable. And while I was there, I thought, we have a blog. We should establish ourselves as thought leaders, and I took it over one day. We would have a handful of hits to our blog a day, and I grew it so that it was one of the top 100,000 blogs, according to Technorati. Doesn't exist anymore, but we, we built a presence. And I would write about things that I was learning. And one day I decided to, instead of taking my normal four hours writing a post, I would do a silly one that uh, captured the top 20 entrepreneurial quotes, at least according to me. And I remember writing it on uh, the train and publishing it without even really thinking about it. And right before that, someone had told me that you could make money while you're blogging. 
and I'm still really poor at this time. I'm looking for any which way to make money. I'm still like picking pennies from the sidewalk if I see them, sticking my fingers in the payphone slots. And uh, they helped me put some ads up on, on the site and I kind of forgot about them. Anyway, I published this post, and of course, that's the post that took off. Right, the one that isn't even, you know, given a second thought. 20 minutes, that's all. And that's the one that, that, that makes it. And it ends up being on the front page of Dig and Stumble Upon. And I'm really aging myself right now. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but then a couple months after that, I got two checks in the mail. And I think they equaled, I don't know, maybe $150, $170. But I was like, wow, like we just put these ads up. It didn't take that long. And look at this, there must be something here. And, um, and then I started learning about affiliate marketing and how convoluted it was that if you wanted to add an affiliate uh, link to your, to your blog, you had to go sign up to an affiliate network, you had to wait to be accepted, you, have to, you had to look for the advertisers, apply. Once you um, got accepted, you had to go find a product keyword, get the link, go back to your blog, add it to the code, publish it. And I thought there's got to be a better way. There's just got to be a better way. And I couldn't find anything out there. And then uh, I gave my notice and I decided that's what I was going to work on. Wow. So you wound up selling that company only, what, a couple years later? Two years later, I got really lucky because I was thinking of shutting the company down. I wasn't sure where we were going. One of my advisors wanted to white label what we were doing. And he had been asking about it for months and my tech team was dwindling and we were moving really slow on the feature that he wanted. And we had a phone call and I remember joking, just saying, Hey, you know, you should just buy us and we could build it in house within your team. And the next day he called and he said, all right, let's talk about an acquisition. Yeah. So how long then until you were inspired to create Roar? So I had to work with Netline for at least a year if I wanted to get a bonus. And while I was there, it just so happened that right after the acquisition, I finally passed the five-year mark that you have to wait to pass as a legal resident to apply for citizenship. Okay. So I just passed that. I remember applying and, um, and then I was going, waiting to hear back and I decided that I was going to quit Netline and that I was going to make up for all the years of the challenges I faced, if you will. So I had been working since I was nine years old. I wanted to know what it was like to be out on my own and be free. Uh, um, and as an American, I felt like I could finally do that. I could finally travel without fear of not being able to come back. So to make up for all those years, uh, first I thought, you know what, I'll take my acquisition money and I'll go travel for a month in South America. I loved, uh, I loved the food, I loved salsa dancing. And then I said, no, it should be two. And then three. And then I was like, what the heck? Six months. You deserve it, Yasmin. And uh, yeah, and I, I booked a flight. And uh, the first month I did full Spanish immersion. Um, went to Spanish school, stayed with a Spanish family. Went over to Colombia, Argentina, Chile, Bolivia, Peru. Spent a month in each. It was amazing. I just wanted to see what it was like to live a local, kind of get out of my comfort zone, be on my own, not be tied to a schedule. And it was liberating. It changed my life. It was an amazing, amazing trip. I learned a lot about myself. Yeah. What's the during. most surprising thing you learned about yourself on the trip? I didn't realize just how closed off I had become to connecting with people. I was so used to living in secrecy that I felt like I had built this shield of armor 
around me and not many people could get close enough to me that I would break that down. And during my trip, because I was by myself, I got to meet and talk to a lot of people. And I think traveling, because it opens up, opens you up to new experiences and you meet other people who are traveling and they're more open to new experiences too, because they're not tied to kind of the rat race or the normal way they're being when they're not on vacation or traveling. I just got to really, I got to connect really quickly with people. And I got to see all the things I was missing by having this shield of armor, if you will. Um, and then also just seeing people as people, no matter what they look like and no matter what they, what language they speak, what, what, what clothes they wear, just realizing that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if we speak Spanish or English or Arabic or whatever. It, we're, we're all the same. We all have the same desires and needs and wants. Yeah. So it was on this trip that you discovered the insights that would turn into Roar for Good. Is that correct? Yeah, it was during this trip, uh, everywhere I went, I just kept hearing stories of times women had been attacked or abused. It could be I'm staying at a hostel and I hear something from a traveler who just heard something from where she had just traveled from. It could be from the host of the couch surfing uh, place that I was at. It could be from the school where apparently the day I started at the school I was at in Ecuador, a fellow traveler had been raped the night before. Uh, so just hearing stories like that over and over, no matter where I was. And then a week after I came back to Philly, it was November of 2013. I had a neighbor that went out to her car and she was grabbed from behind. She was dragged into an alley. She was, um, I think the headline said something like Dr. 26 uh, brutally, uh, brutally raped and assaulted. And that was, that was the inspiration. That was the catalyst, the light bulb moment. Yeah. So you thought to yourself, I have to do something about this. I want to figure out how to make the world a safer place, especially for women, was the instant uh, thought that I had. And at first, the idea was, well, we use pepper spray to protect ourselves. It's the most common self-defense tool, but it's not readily accessible. It's not like you can tell someone, hold on a second, fumble around in your purse or your pocket, get your pepper spray out, and then say, okay, go ahead. And I thought, well, let's make it wearable. This is when Fitbit was all the rage. Let's combine self-defense technology or tools with, with technology and have it so that it's right there when you need it. And at first, it was going to be called the Macelet, Mason a Bracelet. I called up one of my old advisors, Anthony Gold, and we worked on it together. And we quickly learned that it was a terrible idea. Why was it terrible? Because even though uh, pepper spray was the most common form of uh, self-defense device that women had, the industry itself had it had not innovated in 80 years and that it was the industry was created by men initially to protect themselves against animals like bears and wolves. And then they started selling it to other men. And then when the opportunity for women came about to sell it to women, the shrink it and pink it phenomenon happened. So they made, the, they made it smaller and pink and sold it to women, not really taking into account their needs. And the two biggest complaints that I heard over and over again about pepper spray, one was, I'm afraid I'm going to be overpowered and my own self-defense tool used as a weapon against me, which is very counterintuitive. And two is, I'm afraid I'm going to use it on myself accidentally that I spray it, the wind whips back, now it gets in my eyes, now I've hurt myself and I'm gonna be attacked. So found that it was a terrible idea. It's also outlawed in 26 states if you get it on your skin. So if it's a bracelet, you get a rash, it itches. So it's just, there's many, many different reasons, but it's just not working. Yeah, and then 
came up with what women would want and found that women wanted something discreet, something that can deter an attack, call for help, and cannot be used against them. And then took those four criterias, worked with a product designer and a mechanical engineer and electrical engineer to develop Athena. Right. How did, where did the name uh, Roar come from? We were trying to think of what a good name would be that symbolized empowerment. And we were in the office going through a brainstorming session and we, we were stuck and my developer got in his car to go home and Katy Perry's Roar came on. Oh, the song Roar. The song Roar. And he <laughs> called me and he's like, Roar, we should call the company Roar. And I was like, yes, Roar for good, because we want everyone to Roar for good. Because when, even at the very beginning, we didn't want to just, we knew we didn't want to just build a product to build a product. We wanted to create a movement. We wanted to tackle the issue of violence against women at the core. And early on, we decided to become B Corp certified. And we decided that we were going to have this Warback program where for every one that we sold, we would reinvest a portion of the proceeds in nonprofits that went into schools and taught empathy and consent and healthy relationships. The same type of programs that have been proven to reduce assaults and harassment and abuse in the first place. Right. So that's great. So instead of just treating the symptom, you're working on exactly. solving the root cause. That's so cr that's funny that it's named after the song has, uh, do you think Katy Perry has been notified of this? <laughs> <laughs> we reached out to her manager once. We never heard back. Yeah. It would have yeah. been awesome. We, uh, we'll have to, we'll have to spread the, we'll have to get that to her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so now what about, what about Athena? Where did that name come from? I was in a accelerator at Dreamit Ventures and they had a Athena cohort for women entrepreneurs. And once I learned what Athena stood for, which is it's a Greek goddess of wisdom, power, and justice, I thought it would make the best name for the device that we wanted to build. Because we knew we did not want to use any fear-based marketing strategies or ploys. We never wanted to have a guy in an alley or do anything that used or provoked fear to get someone to buy. We really wanted to come from a place of confidence and, and empowerment. And War for Good and Athena symbolize that. So then... You have this concept of the Athena, of the wearable device. It's time to manufacture. You decided to crowdfund, correct? Mm hmm So before you launched the crowdfunding campaign, what were your expectations for crowdfunding? I knew that crowdfunding would be a really great way to get a lot of buzz really fast. And I thought it would be a really great way to validate the idea. My co-founder really wanted to use it for validation. I really wanted to use it for marketing. So we combined both those energies and uh, we thought, okay, well, if this is really going to be something, the crowdfunding campaign would really tell us. It would be a, mark, a, a, sig a signal from the market that we're onto something or not. Yeah. So how did it go? Well, uh, we kept pushing the date back. One of the things I didn't anticipate was it, it was a full-time job setting up the campaign. So we prepared for three months before the crowdfunding campaign, getting the copy just right, getting the video made, lining up the PR contact, lining up our own contacts. It was a lot more work than I thought. Even just one of the biggest things that we did early on is we went and talked to other people who had done crowdfunding and we made a list of the lessons learned that they had, what are the things they wish they would have done differently to make sure we incorporated it into our process. And I remember so many people saying, 
once you're live, it's going to be a full-time job on top of a full-time job. And me laughing, being like, ugh, and not for me. For me, it's going to be different. Yeah. For me, it's going to be, it's not going to be like that. And realizing really quickly that they were right. Um, but yeah, no, we launched it. Our goal was 40,000. That was going to be just enough for the tooling of the device. And we hit that on the second day, hit a hundred thousand within the 10th day, and then went on to raise 313,000. So how do you feel when, when you see that number, when you've almost 10 X your goal, what goes through your head? I would say anxiety, but also, holy crap, that's awesome. So anxiety, cause now we have to deliver right so now there's all these people that have given us our money ahead of time on a product that doesn't quite exist yet that hasn't been manufactured i don't want to make sure that i do right by them uh, but also like our goal was forty thousand, and we blew it away like we really are onto something and you know having this sense of i really hope this makes a difference and i really hope that we accomplish our goal yeah so <clears throat> you raise all the money the press gets a hold of the story, you're named one of BBC's 100 Women of the Year. There's a ton of buzz, the pressure's on. Was there any point that you had the thought that, oh no, this may not pan out the way I hope it would? Multiple times. Yeah. Yeah, and shortly right after the crowdfunding campaign. So right after the crowdfunding campaign, you're right, we were getting all kinds of buzz. We had orders in every state in the US, about 45 countries around the world. We had Ashton Kutcher posting about it, all these celebrities, authors, and we were blown away by their response. When we finished the crowdfunding campaign, I don't remember now if it was 3,500 or 4,500 devices by then had been ordered. And we went to our manufacturer to kick off design for manufacturing, the DFM process, when they dropped us. So... At the very early on, to go back to what I said earlier in terms of talking to a lot of people that had done crowdfunding campaigns before and what they learned, one of the things that I kept hearing again and again was it's going to be really hard to find a manufacturer that can do low volume. And now, like, we have to, we have to go find someone, we have to commit to a certain number of units, and we don't know if we're going to sell those units. So hearing that feedback over and over, I thought to myself, well, I should go try to find a manufacturer that does low volume. So I don't run into this challenge that other people had. And that's what I had done. I found the manufacturer in Taiwan that could do um, low volume. Well, after we had all these orders, they were like, no, we can't fulfill this. In the, in, it's too many, too many orders. We can't work with you. And they dropped us. So we had promised our backers that we would ship within nine months of the campaign and the first three and a half months after the campaign, we spent vetting other manufacturers. Uh, it was a really painful, painful, laborious process to go through the whole RFB process again, the vetting, uh, flying out to look at the factory, and already we lost three and a half months. Yeah, but, and then you with. still have to go through tooling, you and still you have to get the first batch. you still have to build everything, you still have to set up the assembly line, you still have to go through EVT, PVT, where you build, you test, you build again, test again. Uh, so we, we lost a, a good chunk of time because of that. That was one of the hardest thing to go from the rise and success and news of the crowdfunding campaign to the devastation of, oh, already we're behind on delivering on our timeline. Already we're going to be upsetting our backers. Right. So what about Roar for Good most excites you today? 
I would say we get some really nice emails from customers that talk about how they have changed their life based on being able to use Athena so or enhance their life by having the tool like real estate agents who use it when they show homes to strangers, empty homes to strangers, parents who are giving their kids independence for the first time and getting them on public transportation within Athena and feeling safe, that peace of mind that they have it if they need it. We've heard from survivors who said that, you know, one, one person I remember said that she had been assaulted while jogging and she had not gone jogging for seven years. And she went jogging for the first time with her Athena and reclaiming her independence, her power back. Uh, so little things like that are the most enjoyable part of, of what we do. And then the empathy programs that we invest in, uh, it's going to take many years to kind of see the output of that work. But working with these nonprofits are doing really important work and being able to provide them with the funding to continue doing it is also another piece that's really exciting for us. So for both of these companies so far that you've started, they've been located in Philadelphia. Was that an intentional choice? I want to say yes, but it was mostly because my family's here and because of all the things that we've gone through, we're really, really close and I can't imagine moving anywhere where they're not there. So I would say primarily it's been due to my family being here is why my companies have started here. Have you been, have you felt the pull to go elsewhere at any point? Not at all. No, I can't imagine leaving my family. That's awesome. Um, so you talk a lot about... I've had the pull to travel. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a big difference. Well, I mean, I feel the same way. I love to travel, but Philly's just, it's home, right? Yeah. Family, friends, I it's got everything. I love coming back here. Yeah. Yeah. You asked me about why it feels like home. I don't know if you want me to elaborate on that. That would be great. Yeah, it's mostly because um, what what didn't hit me until 2016. So 2016, Philadelphia Magazine needed be one of the top 20 best Philadelphians in Philadelphia. And I remember them sending me the email and reading the email and instantly tearing up and then just being flabbergasted as to why. And I marked it unread, went home, opened it back up when I was on my couch. And then it was kind of like the life-death situations in movies where they have flashbacks. Like I had this flashback of being born in Kuwait, Kuwait rejecting me as a citizen because my parents were Palestinian. Palestinians over there are treated as second-class citizens. Becoming a refugee, learning I was an undocumented, being labeled an immigrant, finally becoming a U.S. citizen over the course of 30 years, and, and realizing that all along that time, I never really fit in anywhere. I never really felt like I was a part of something. And it wasn't that they called me best, it was that they called me a Philadelphian, a Philadelphian that made me realize that I was home and I didn't realize that I was home. Like this was my place, this is where I fit in. The companies that I had started, the communities I started with Girl Develop It, like this was, this was home. I may not have been born here, but this, I am a Philadelphian. And it was an amazing feeling. You talk a lot about the concept of the birth lottery. Uh, can you explain what that is? To me, the birth lottery is just the randomness of our starting point. It's the fact that we don't choose where we're born, when we're born, our parents, our socioeconomic class, our gender, our race, and and how all of them play into the twist of fate that leads us to either the opportunities that we're going to have or the circumstances that we fall into. And that 
we have no influence at all over any of these, but yet they determine the trajectory of our life. Yeah. So do you have any advice for those who want to defy the results of their birth lottery? For me, I think that when I look back, what helped me get through my challenges and my struggles is focusing on the things that I could control. There wasn't many things I can control being broken undocumented, but I could control my mindset. I could control working hard. I could control going to school. And I decided to focus on those with the outlook, a positive outlook, even though sometimes it's, it, you know, there's moments of despair within that, that these are the things that the more I do, the more I focus on that are going to get me out of my situation. And when I have bad days, I think of that and I get up and I go do it because I see the light. I see them as being the light at the end of the tunnel that are going to get me out. And that's what really, really helped me. Other than just, you know, basic words of encouragement, if you could send a message to yourself in the past, would you? And if so, what would you say? I truly believe that without all the experiences I had, I would not be the person who I am. So when people ask, do you have any regrets? I don't see any regrets. I see a lot of opportunities of growth that I've had that have helped me become the resilient person that I am. Um, so I, I don't know if I would give myself any, any type of feedback. I, if I could, I would just say, keep going. It gets better. It, it gets better. If you could send a message to every Philadelphian, one message, everyone gets it. What would you say? I would talk about the birth lottery. I really think the birth lottery concept is really profound in helping people see each other as humans first versus labels or generalizations. And I think if we all took the time to really ponder our starting point and how random it is, I think we would empathize with people who are not like us more and that we'd be better citizens. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? Biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? Um, I think we're seen as New York and San Francisco are kind of the top cities I feel like we always get compared to. And right now I'm just thinking within tech. Uh, so I, I feel like we get overlooked, even though we have such amazing things happening here in Philly, that the crime rate is down, but I feel like the perception is that we are, we are very gritty and dirty and there's a lot of, of violent crime here, that it's very walkable, it's very, the cost of living is very cheap. Uh, there's a lot of great open green spaces. I think it's a phenomenal city. It's the US, you know, the America's best kept secret, but I feel like we're reaping the rewards of the perception that people have. Right, maybe we should not let the secret <laughs> out. Maybe I should just shut down the podcast. <laughs> Never mind, everyone, it sucks here. Um, what's the most encouraging thing you see in Philadelphia today? Well, right now at this very moment, I love that we're a sanctuary city. And it really means a lot due to my personal values and where I came from. And I'm glad that our mayor stood up to the administration and kept us a sanctuary city despite everything that's happening. Yeah, it's a place where refugees can go and know that they can get a new start. And having it be where America started. Right. For that to be, for it to tie back to that, I think is that's pretty perfect. amazing. We haven't forgotten our roots. Is it true that you idolized Allen Iverson growing up? Yes, it is. Why? 
I was really into basketball. I was a big tomboy, and I followed the 76ers. And while Allen Iverson uh, was picked as the number one draft, and he started playing, and he decided to defy the image of an NBA athlete by wearing his clothes and doing his hair the way he wanted to do it unapologetically. I took notice. I really admired that in him. And then I learned about his background and his story and where he came from. How he would go to school with holes in his clothes. How he would have holes in his sneakers as he played basketball. How he grew up uh, in a very volatile home environment where his mom was addicted to drugs. He would take care of his sister and his mom. And how despite all those challenges, he was able to overcome them and become what he is. And I wanted to be that. And I really just respect that he came from nothing to end up where he ended up. For more on Yasmin, you can head over to podphillywho.com forward slash roar. That's R-O-A-R. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and maybe even give us a rating on iTunes. You can also give us a shout on Twitter and Instagram at podphillywho. We'd love to hear your thoughts and who else you'd like to hear on the show. Music by Lee Rosevere, podcast art by Lauren Carhart. A very special thanks to Yasmin and Roar for being a guest on the show. For Pod Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>